You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, church. My name is Chris Coyne, and I serve with Connections and with High School Students Ministry. I'll be reading this morning from Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. Please open your Bibles with me. If you do not have one, there's one under the seat in front of you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church family. Good to see you this week. Hope you are doing all right here. How about this fall weather? We'll take it for a day, right? My goodness. Thank you, Lord. But we return to summer uh, later this week, so that's okay. Be of good news. Genesis 41. If you have a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn with me to Genesis 41. We read from Ephesians 1 just a moment ago, and I'm going to show you in a minute that has everything to do with the text that we're in today. But Genesis 41, as we continue in our study of the book of Genesis, we are nearing now kind of the climax of this Joseph narrative that we've been in the last couple of weeks. Um, and really what you've been seeing, if you've been paying attention in this series, uh, are three dominant themes. You've seen them in Joseph, but they're on display in all of Genesis. Three dominant themes, the promise of God, the providence of God, and the presence of God have been on display, especially in the last couple of chapters. The promise of God, that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would bless them, that he would bring through them not only a great nation that he would make out of them, but through that would come one who is the prophesied serpent crusher from Genesis 3, the one who will come and undo all that sin's curse had done, the savior of the world, Jesus Christ is the one who will come from this family. And then we've seen the providence of God, God working out all circumstances, good, evil, everything, God ultimately using it to bring about his redemptive purposes that will result in the glory of his name and the good of his people. And then yes, the very presence of God, the covenantal favor of God that is promised to go with his children, his chosen elect, when they enter into suffering, according to the will of God, his presence will be with them. And we've seen this. And I want, to watch, want you to see and watch all three of those converge, starting here in chapter 41, and especially in the next couple of weeks here. If you remember from last week, Joseph was in prison. And he interpreted the dreams of two prisoners, one that led to an unfavorable result, and one that led to a favorable result. 
And he pleaded and begged with the cupbearer who had the favorable result that when he got re-exalted to his position that he would not forget Joseph, but he would remember him. But you see at the very last verse of chapter 40, verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but he forgot him. He forgot him. This week, I wanna show you that God did not forget Joseph. He does not forget his children. In fact, what you're gonna see this week is that the same God who rules and reigns over the affairs of the nations has been so kind to reveal his purposes to his people. And that God is also the same God who remembers his children while he works out those plans. I wanna quickly read through this text. It's a long chapter. I'm gonna read through it very quickly. I wanna draw out really kind of those three sub-themes, the God who rules, the God who reveals, and the God who remembers. I want you to see these in the text, and then I'm gonna camp on those three applications here at the end. But we begin chapter 41, verse one. After two whole years... Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. And they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. Pharaoh awoke and he fell asleep and he dreamed a second time. Behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke. Behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled and he sent and he called all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and he put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. And a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain guard. And when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving us an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, So it came about, I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. I wanna stop there for a moment. Here's what we have. Two whole years have passed since chapter 40. Two years have gone by since Joseph interpreted those two dreams of those prisoners, the baker and the cupbearer. Two years since he had been forgotten. No mention of him. And now... Joseph is 30 years old. He's been enslaved in Egypt for 13 years. And at this moment is when Pharaoh, the head of the largest empire in the world in that day, 
he has not one, but two dreams, disturbing dreams that night. Seven fat cows being eaten up by seven skinny cows. Seven plump ears of grain being swallowed up by seven skinny ears of grain. And both of these events occurring down at the Nile River. Those details of that dream are very significant because they're gonna help us understand one of the major points of this chapter. Pharaoh, understand who Pharaoh is. Pharaoh is the sovereign leader over Egypt. He was considered himself a god, specifically an intermediary god by his people. One who would go between the gods and the affairs of the people. And he was seen as one who had sovereign events over, sovereign rule over the events of the future. This is who Pharaoh was considered to be. He alone in many ways controlled the destiny and the welfare of the people in whom he led. And he had dreams, dreams as we learned about last week in the ancient world, dreams were often considered, especially dreams of kings were considered as revelations from the gods concerning the future of which Pharaoh was the one first empowered to interpret his own dreams. In the event that he could not, he was assisted by his council, an advisory board, um, some of the wisest people who could be afforded to Pharaoh were at his side. The most educated astrologers and sorcerers and diviners who were schooled in the art of interpretation. And in this moment, they are especially interested in these two dreams because of where they are, not only what's happening, but where they are happening. They're happening down at the Nile. Understand the Nile River is the longest river in the world, in Africa. Its waters flow from the south down near the, uh, the equator in Africa and flow northward. Its basin is at the Mediterranean Sea. And so the Nile, it receives its rainfall down by the equator. And that is what fuels the waters going all the way up to the Mediterranean. Its delta is up there. The Nile basin at the delta, which is in Egypt, creates some of the richest cropland in the entire world and withstands famines. Yeah, how many times have we seen famine going on in the narrative of Genesis from Abraham forward where they have to go down to Egypt in order to protect themselves because Egypt is usually foolproof from famine because it's not dependent. It doesn't have to rain in Egypt. It just has to get its waters from the equatorial region. And so Egypt is not dependent upon rain. As a result, the Egyptians revered the Nile River itself. They viewed the Nile as a deified God because of what the Nile could produce. And so this dream, these dreams are doubly alarming for what's going on and has puzzled all the wisest of men in all of Egypt. And yet hear this, not one of the wisest men who afforded to the most powerful man on the entire earth could figure out what these dreams were about. Not even the mediatory God, Pharaoh himself, so-called God, could discern what these dreams meant. And it's in that moment when the cupbearer 
has a recollection from two years earlier and goes, oh yeah, I forgot. I was supposed to say something. I know a guy who I think could help in this situation two years later. And therefore we see what happens in verse 14 and following. The Pharaoh sent and he called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. There's that word again, pit. It's translated cistern in chapter 37, translated uh, prison in chapter 40. It's where Joseph has spent all of his time in these pits. And they brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. But Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And what happens in verse 17 through 24, Pharaoh reiterates that those two dreams to Joseph. And he says in verse 24, I had told these dreams to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. And so Joseph then says to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are actually one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them, there will arise seven years of famine and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. So stop right there for a moment. He tells him, all of these dreams, they represent seven years of plenty that are gonna be followed by seven years of famine. This section right here is meant to stand in stark contrast to what just preceded it. All those people, including Pharaoh, who is perceived as a God, all the wisest of counsel that, that the earth could afford that are at his disposal and not one of them could figure out what these dreams meant, what was going on. And yet five times now in this narrative, we are boldly reminded that it is God whom these dreams belong to. It is God who, is, who has revealed these dreams because it is God who has decreed these dreams. I want you to see this, starting back in chapter 40, verse eight, Joseph said, do not all interpretations belong to God. Then you look at 41, chapter 41, verse 16. It is not me, but God who gives the answer. Then you see in 41, verse 25, even Pharaoh now acknowledges God has revealed what he is about to do. 
Chapter 41, verse 28, God showed Pharaoh what he is about to do. Chapter 41, verse 32, it is now the doubling of these dreams that means these events are fixed by God. God will bring it about. God is the one who is sovereignly in control of the affairs of the nations. In this moment, we see this clearly. And I'm not sure if you've caught it, the doubling theme that has been going on since the beginning of the Joseph narrative in chapter 37. In chapter 37, Joseph has how many dreams? Two dreams. Chapter 40, how many dreams did the prisoners have together? Two dreams. Chapter 41, verse one tells us now after two years, and now Pharaoh himself has two dreams. And even in this chapter, Pharaoh's dreams are repeated two times. We have a doubling theme that's happening here. This is significant for us. Now, just so you know, that doesn't mean that every dream that you have, that's two times in a row, if you dream two nights in a row that a donut is chasing you, that there's some mystical interpretation, it may just mean your blood sugar's high and and you just need to be reminded to lay off the sweets. I, I don't know. But we do know this, Deuteronomy 19 is eventually gonna tell us that it is by the testimony of two or three witnesses that a fact is confirmed. And what we are meant to see in this case is that God is the one over the dreams. God is using these dreams to reveal very significant things to his people. And they are fixed by him. They are sovereignly decreed and ordained by him. And we are meant to see this. Moses is letting us know that it's the undeniable fact that God is the one who sovereignly rules and reigns over all the affairs of mankind. God is the one in control, not Joseph's brothers, not the Ishmaelites, not Potiphar's wife, not the prison guard, not Pharaoh, not the wise men, not famine, not even Joseph himself. It is God who is in control. We are meant to see this. And the reason God is able to reveal what is going to happen is because God happens to be the very one who decreed what was going to happen. This would have been, by the way, a total punk down right now to all of Egypt and their so-called gods. And certainly would have been incredibly timely for the original readers, the Israelites who are reading this account, who themselves had just come out of the exodus in Egypt, having a front row seat to watching God sovereignly flex his power and his authority over a different Pharaoh that'll come later. And the 10 gods that they served by God sending 10 plagues upon Egypt in that time. The point here is that what fallen man needs, including the kings of the world like Pharaoh, is not the speculation of man, but the revelation of God. It is, it is not the wisdom of man that this earth needs. It is the word of God that is meant to serve as our authority and our guide. Now, once, Joseph, once God in his kindness has revealed his plans and his purposes to Joseph for the people, then what must come next is the responsibility of those people to act in accordance with the revelation that has been given. 
And that's what you see next, starting in verse 33. Joseph says, after interpreting this dreams, now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. And this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. So we see here, Joseph not only tells Pharaoh what God is about to do, but also how they can respond in accordance to that revelation. And he gives them five steps here. Number one, appoint one man who can be in charge of this entire plan and execute it. Number two, appoint overseers throughout the land to help implement this plan. Number three, during the years of plenty, the seven years of plenty, you need to double down on the tax of grain. Instead of the usual one-tenth or 10% tax on grain, you need to go to 20%, one-fifth of the tax on grain. And then fourth, you need to start a savings account during those seven years. And then fifthly, during the years of famine, you need to distribute those savings so that the people can live off of it. Clearly, what we are meant to see here is that Joseph, while in prison, took a Dave Ramsey's course and figured out how to do some, some wise financial stewardship right here. Here's the deal. This plan is wisdom. This plan is wisdom that acts responsibly in accordance to the revelation that God has just given. Now, this Pharaoh being totally humbled by both God's revelation about this dream, but now the wisdom given through Joseph as to what to do with this dream, he goes, okay, I hear that five-step plan. First one's to find a man in charge. I think I got a guy. Verse 38, and Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Make a note, by the way, Joseph is the only person in the entire book of Genesis whom it is said he has the spirit of God with him. And so Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Therefore you shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I, only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in the second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent, none shall lift up a hand or a foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name 
Zaphonoth Paneah, which he gave him in marriage to Asnath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. And so Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and he put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asnath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, she bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end and the seven years of famine began to come. And Joseph, had, as Joseph had said, there was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread all over the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Church, I want you to feel the weight of not only what we just read in that section, what we've read for the past several weeks. I want you to consider the narrative of Joseph so far. Consider all that Joseph has gone through these last 13 years, being sold out by his brothers, brought into slavery down to Egypt, stripped away of everything he had known. He had been, he had been humbled. Then he'd been exalted in Potiphar's house and then falsely accused. He's humbled again in prison for a number of years and then left for another two years. Think about everything Joseph had been through. And now what we just read is that literally probably in a span now of about 15 minutes, Joseph has gone from a prisoner in the lowest of pits to the prince of the highest of palaces. He is given a signet ring. That's like being given the king's credit card. He's clothed in royal garments. This is now the third time we have seen Joseph robed in a garment of authority. He is given a gold chain and a chariot, symbols of his royal authority. He is given a new name, Zaphonoth Paneah. In Hebrew, it means God speaks or the revealer of secrets. To the Egyptians though, they would have heard savior of the world. He is given a wife, a foreign wife 
from a priestly family that's now marries him into nobility. And he is told that from now on, all people are going to bow down to him. Make a note, his dreams in chapter 37 of his family coming to bow down to him are now about to be set in motion. Only the sovereign providence of God could bring all of this about. Interestingly enough, we see evidence that even in the advancement of Joseph in this pagan position, he does not compromise his faith in Yahweh. Notice his foreign wife, Asenath, is the daughter of a pagan priest who served the gods of Egypt. Yet interestingly enough, now we can't bank on this, this is extra biblical source, but there was a novel written several centuries after this event occurred during the time of Philo, one of the rulers of Egypt, which claimed that Joseph's wife had converted to faith in Yahweh. Now we can't substantiate that, but it seems fitting. But certainly what we can see in this text is how he retains his faith in the naming of his children. Notice they are not given Egyptian names as you would expect he would have given them. Instead, he gives them Hebrew names, Menashe and Ephraim, which we just say Manasseh and Ephraim. But even more, it's in these names that we get a window into how Joseph felt about all these hardships that he has gone through for the last 13 years. I suspect if this were me, having gone through what Joseph had gone through, put in prison, forgotten about, I might name my kids burned by God, bitter at God. I just call them both lames, the miserables. But notice what he names them. Ephraim means doubly fruitful. My God has taken something bitter and he's made something sweet. My God has stripped away everything and blessed me with more than I could have ever imagined. And then he names the other one Menasheh or Manasseh, which sounds like the Hebrew word forgot. Remember chapter 40 ended with the cupbearer not remembering Joseph. He forgot all about him. Do you know how Exodus chapter one, verse eight is going to begin? Years later, there'll be a new Pharaoh that'll come in, not this one, but a new one. Exodus 1, eight begins this way. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, forgot about him. Joseph's whole life here has been filled with people who have constantly forgotten about him. But Joseph confesses in the naming of his sons after all that he has been through, God didn't forget about me. God never forgot about me. In fact, the only forgetting that would stick with him is the sweet fruit of God's grace that helped him to forget all the hardship that he had gone through. Now, all of that is just priming the pump for what is coming in the next few weeks that we're gonna see in the reconciliation with Joseph to his brothers. But for now, we gotta ask the question, why is this text here in chapter 41? Three things I want to 
reinforce that we've already talked about. Number one, one of the things we are meant to see in this text is that it is indeed God who rules and reigns sovereignly over the affairs of the nations. Though Pharaoh was the greatest ruler of his day over the strongest empire of his day, neither were in control of Egypt. It was God who was in control of Egypt. It was God who was in control of Canaan. It was God who was in control of the affairs of the nation. And he still is today. Listen to this, Psalm 22, verse 28. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Man, you think it's Biden. You think it's Netanyahu. You think it's Putin. It's God who is the one who is sovereignly ruling and reigning over the nations. Job confessed in Job chapter 12, verse 23. He makes nations great and he destroys them. And he enlarges nations and he leads them away. Paul told the church in Rome in Romans 13 verse one, there is no authority except that from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Remember what Jesus said. In John chapter 19, when he stood before Pilate on the day of his execution and Pilate said to him, the Roman governor, do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? What was Jesus's response? You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. You think you have authority. My father is the one who rules and reigns. If anything's gonna happen, it's because he has a purpose in it and he's bid it to do so. The question is, do you and I believe this? Do you believe that right now God is the one who rules and reigns over the affairs of the nations, even though it looks like some of our nations are running like a roller coaster with nobody in command? That God is the one who rules and reigns. What's going on with Russia and Ukraine right now is under God's control. What's going on with Hamas and Israel as of yesterday There is a God who is over that. What's going on with China or North Korea, for every one of us who right now are just loathing this election cycle that's coming next year, there is one God who rules and reigns over all the affairs of the nations. God's sovereign providence with the nations does not mean that we don't think, that we don't act, or we don't engage responsibly as citizens and stewards. We do. But it does mean that we do not fear or forget who is really in control, lest we put our hope in the wrong powers that lead us to despair. Our trust must be in God. The psalmist confessed the same thing, Psalm 33, 16 and 17. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. God is the one who sovereignly rules and reigns over the affairs of the nations. But that being said, we must also understand from this text that he has given his children revelation in his word 
that lets us know what he is doing and what is coming so that we might live responsibly in accordance with that revelation. This too is important. One of the things we clearly see in this text is that you could take the wisest men in the world that the world could offer at that time and they still couldn't figure out what God was doing in the world. Yet you can take this uneducated, imprisoned Hebrew slave and he can figure it out. Why? Because they didn't know God, he did. The world does not know God, but Joseph did. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2.13, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God. Why? Because they're folly to him. Oh, you want to tell me God's in control of the rule of the, the nation? Some of you sitting in here have already mocked the fact that that would be one of the major points. It seems foolish to think that God is in control of all things. They seem foolish to the world. And yet we are told here, the reason they can't figure it out ultimately is because they're not able to understand because they are things that are spiritually discerned. You have to have the spirit of God in you in order to spiritually discern what God has decreed and ordained for the nations. Understand this, this is what we're getting at. You can have a PhD in astrophysics, historical studies, statistical data analysis. You can be the president of a nation with all your advisory cabinet all around you. And yet, if you do not know God or his word, you are no more intelligent than a newborn baby. Why? Because all you have is speculation and not revelation. All you have is guesses, not God. God in his kingdom, in his kingdom kindness towards us. He has revealed himself to us. He has revealed his plans for the ages through his word. In this book, we know who God is. We know who we are. We know why we're here. We know what's gone wrong with the world and what God is doing right now in order to bring about redemption through Jesus Christ for the good of all of us. We know that all in this book right here. And it's one of the reasons, by the way, that we have one of our core classes at Northway is the story of scripture. Because we wanna show from beginning to end, from cover to cover of the Bible, we are seeing the picture of God's redemptive plan in the history of the world. Why? So we're not clueless. So we know what he's doing. So therefore we can know how to live in accordance with that revelation. Paul said the same thing to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians chapter five, verse 15 and following. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, church, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In other words, you have received this revelation of what God is up to in the world. So don't live like you don't know what's going on. Don't live like the rest of the world who's operating in speculation and not revelation. You've been given revelation. He's pulled back the curtains, not completely. We don't see all things, but he's pulled back what he wants us to see so that in accordance with what we have, we can walk with what we know. But understand this, 
as you go out there like Joseph and you declare to the world what is, gonna, what is about to happen, what God has decreed and ordained and what he requires of mankind, understand not everybody's gonna appreciate you like Pharaoh did Joseph. You will run the risk of looking foolish in the eyes of the worldly intellectual elite. Paul told us this in 1 Corinthians chapter one, listen to this, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. You wouldn't have even made Pharaoh's advisory board. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You get the idea? Paul had just been reading Genesis 41 when he wrote that. Now, why do these first two points matter? That God is sovereign and his rule over the nations and he's revealed to us his plan so that we might live in accordance with them. It's so thirdly, you can confidently know, even as God is working out his plans, that even on the worst of your days, God has not forgotten about you. God does not forget his elect children. When we get to the end of this book in a few weeks, I'd love for you to just keep reading through Exodus on your own just picks right up with the story. And as you do so, you will see that all of these events that have taken place in the book of Genesis, specifically in this time of Joseph, all of these events were arranged among the nations in order to provide and protect for just one family. One family. God is moving famine and, and Egypt and the affairs of the nations around in order to grab one family, the family of Jacob, 70 people that he's going to bring in in a time of famine. He's, he moves all of this just to get them into Egypt, to protect them in Egypt so that 430 years later, even under immense hardship, those 70 people are going to come out 3 million. And those three million are finally going to inherit the promise that God made of a land and the blessing so that they will go into Canaan and there they will represent the purposes of God of which out of that one family that came out the millions, there is one seed who will come in whom all the earth is going to be blessed. His name is Jesus Christ. All of this in Genesis for one family. So that, think about the original readers that are reading this right now. If they were reading this real time on the banks of the Jordan, about to go into that land, just reading this account, you know what they could probably say? They could probably say, blessed be the God and father of our Prince Joseph, who in Joseph has now blessed us with all of these blessings according to the purposes of God's will. It's in him, Joseph, that we actually got our redemption According to the riches of God's grace, he made known the mystery of his will 
to Joseph so that in him, according to his promises set forth in Joseph, we would all be united together in God's promise. They could have said that. But do you know who does say that? God himself about us. Not in Joseph, but in Jesus Christ. Remember these words, Ephesians chapter one, verse three and following. Blessed be the God and father, not of Joseph, but our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us and the beloved. It is in Christ that we have our redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Does this story sound remotely familiar? Think about this. A God who has been orchestrating all the events of human history over all the nations so that at the right time, he would send one man one man from a highly exalted position in his father's house to descend in humiliation in one of the lowest pits you can find in humanity. Discarded and left for dead in a pit. And while in that pit, in that prison, visiting those in prison, declaring to them victory so that he can lead forth a host of captives only to be miraculously resurrected, re-exalted to the second highest position of all at the right hand of the king, where there he is given a new garment of royalty, being told by the king, all authority in heaven and earth is now given to you, given the name Zapaneth Panea, God's perfect revelation, savior of the world, to whom every knee is to bow and every tongue is to confess that he is Lord and then taking for himself a foreign bride who is to be made his own. There are actually several direct parallels in this story to Joseph and how he is actually a true and better Adam from Genesis 3. We don't have time to get into those parallels right now, but I think what we are meant to see here is that that Joseph is not just the true and better Adam, Jesus is the true and better Joseph. Jesus is the true and better Joseph and the gospel of our God who has not forgotten about us. Even though we are going through hardship right now, even though it seems like the nations are raging and it feels like everything is out of control, we can know that our God is in control and he is moving to accomplish his plans in human history that involves reconciling you and I to God through Jesus Christ for his glory and our good. Church, God is on the throne. He has revealed his plans and he has not forgotten you. So put your trust in him. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe this text.
help us to see this is not just a story about Joseph. This is a story about what you have done with us through our Lord and Savior, your servant, Jesus Christ, who came and took on flesh, the likeness of men who suffered an awful death, but Lord has been resurrected, O God, and now exalted to your right hand where currently he rules and reigns and his plans will not be thwarted. Thank you that, O God, in the midst of it, we have found our salvation in Jesus Christ, our King, our Savior, our Zephath Paneah. Lord, thank you for sending him for us. God, help us to be found in him. Help us to trust in you, O God, until your plans are finally perfected in that day when all things will be made new. Until then, keep us on mission for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.